Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own this morning, that we may hear your word and the vision that you have given Chapelwood through Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading today is from Acts 2:42 through 3:10. Here are these words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and all had things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much of their time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily by the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms for those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or no gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking around and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have a confession to make, and that is that I am obsessed with watches. Some of you know me this about me. Um, my prized possession is my grandfather's Omega Constellation. It's from about the late 60s, and I love that watch. It was uh, given to me by my, my folks, and I absolutely love watches. I love the movement. Uh, I'm wearing a Seiko, which is you know, a cheap Japanese movement. Uh, and then if you know anything about watches, you know, you got Swiss movement and all those different things. Uh, and no one else likes watches in here except for me. That's okay. I get it. I love watches. I think they're fascinating. Uh, all the gears, how they fit together. They're just beautiful pieces of art to behold. I had a friend uh, who was coming down to speak at uh, our men's retreat. And uh, he was kind of trying to organize the flight and all of that. And he said, I can come down on Wednesday. And I was like, Wednesday? He said, yeah, I can come down on Wednesday. I go, dude, that's, that's Ash Wednesday. You cannot fly down to a church event during Ash Wednesday. Because there are two types of time, right? There is a telos, which is like the watch time, the human time. And then there is kairos. And the kairos is God's 
time. We live in telos, right? We sort of function with like the time of day. We're always looking at our watch, always checking your phone to see what time it is. We punch the clock at work. That's telos. And then there's kairos, God's time. And I was like, this dude, my friend, he had no sense of Kairos at all. He was like, I'm coming down on Ash Wednesday. I was like, you can't come down on Ash Wednesday. I am busy on Ash Wednesday. That is God's time, right? It is a time, it is the beginning of Lent. You can't just like show up on Ash Wednesday. Kairos, man, Kairos, not Telos, Kairos. There are markers in our life that remind us of God's time. There are things in our life that bring us into Kairos, into God's time. Things like baptism, confirmation, graduation, getting married, having children, retiring from your primary work to sort of figure out what's next in life. All these things sort of shake us and remind us that maybe we aren't in control all the time. That there is a, a God who sort of calls us to different seasons and tasks and things and gives us a greater sense of time. Discipleship is a lot like that. It's a, it's a lifelong journey, and we are always on a path, and we can't retire from discipleship. We can't graduate out of high school from discipleship. We can't just forget that it's there. Even when we sort of forget that discipleship is there, God is still working and shaping and forming us and who we will become. And discipleship takes time. We've been in a series focusing on discipleship, and in the, in the first week we were uh, privileged to hear from Rhonda Taylor, our director of Christian education. She shared a little bit about her journey as a disciple, and she wrestled with the question, what is a disciple? Last week we heard from Pastor Peter share about the importance of knowing ourselves, knowing that we're wired in a particular way with a particular set of gifts for the community of God, and that that particular wiring is beautiful and unique and that God made us that way. And today I want us to sit and wrestle with a simple question. How does worship affect your discipleship? How does the act of worship affect your discipleship and your spiritual journey? Because there are markers along the journey to help us and to guide us. In our passage we heard today, there was this uh, story outside the temple. The temple was sort of central to Judaism. It's where the, the people would gather to worship God. And this man has been placed outside of the gate because he knows it's sort of the center of worship life for these folk. Right? Uh, good Jews would pray three times a day, and they would pray uh, a number of prayers, and they were kind of told when to pray. Sometimes called the hours, right? And then our pastor says, on the third hour, they gather and they go up to temple. It was customary. It was part of the community. It's what they did. It was their Sunday morning and their Sunday school, right? It's their Wednesday night. But they, a good Jew would say the Shema three times a day. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It reminds people of God's faithfulness to them as, as God's chosen people. That's what the Jews would do. They had the temple, which is the center of their activity. And there was, of course, sort of bells and smells and whistles 
that went along with everything in the temple. There's whole entire chapters in uh, the Old Testament that talk about what the priest should wear, what the priest should do, how they should walk, what the offerings should look like, what to do if you bring a grain offering or a fruit offering or a lamb or a bull or a goat or a dove, and they get listed all out. That's the liturgy of God's people. The temple was central. And I wonder, what are sort of those central things in our life? Like, what are those prayers that, that we pray three times a day? What is the importance of coming to this building once a week? And how has liturgy shaped and formed who you are as a follower of Christ? And maybe if you're like me, um, you didn't grow up with this word. Maybe this word is funny to you, or maybe it's old hat for you. I'm not sure. By show of hands, how many of you grew up in what you would call a liturgical setting? Okay. Maybe halfish. How many of you did not? Okay. The other half. Some of you are like, I don't even know what liturgy is, right? And that's okay. It's like, yeah. Some people are like, I don't know. That word looks funny, right? No idea what it is. So, that's my boy. He also grew up in a mixed setting. It happens. <laughs> His dad wears a collar sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't. It's confusing. So. Oh, yes I do. Okay, so I did not grow up really in what I would call liturgical, right? We certainly had Advent, we certainly had Easter, but I do not remember the first time that I heard the word lectionary. I I couldn't tell you. Maybe it was high school, maybe it was college, I I don't know. Well, what the lectionary is, for some of you who also do not know what the word lectionary is, that's okay. The lectionary is a division of our sacred text, the scriptures, over the course of three years, A, B, and C. And this, uh, these readings are divided up into four different categories. You have the Torah, or the law, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You'd have a section from the Psalms, or usually the wisdom literature, maybe Proverbs, generally Psalms, because there's 150 of them, you can do a lot of Psalms. And then you would have a gospel reading, right? We need to remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you'd have a reading from the epistles, right? Those are a fancy word for, for letters. And Paul wrote a lot of those, so we'd read from Galatians or Ephesians. And you'd, you'd have an option to hear all of those scriptures read. That's what the lectionary is. And the lectionary is tied to particular times of the year. My pastor growing up, my first pastor, his name was uh, Quentin Small. He's a, a gigantic man, so his name was ironic. And uh, he, uh, we would, I remember sitting next to him. I don't know why I sat on the first pew, maybe because I was destined to be a pastor, but that's what I did. I sat next to Quentin, and Quentin could not carry a tune in a bucket to save his life, right? He couldn't sing any hymn at all. He'd be like, just follow along, Quentin. He'd be like, I can't do it. <laughs> that's fine. I remember Quentin, though, because he always wore the pulpit robe. And he always had his stole, and he was always greeting parishioners as they left. And I made sure I was always the first person to shake his hand. I remember what he wore and sort of how he functioned in the space. My second pastor, as I was growing up, I grew up Presbyterian, by the way. They're the folks who invented the clergy collar, not the Catholics. A little trivia for today. Uh, and so uh, the second pastor I grew up with, his name is Pastor Steve. He actually pastors in Clear Lake now, Texas, small world. Anyways, he was a hybrid kind of a guy. Sometimes he would wear a robe. Sometimes he would wear a button up or button down, depending on what region you're from and how you think those buttons should go. And then uh, he would, sometimes he would wear a Colts jersey. 
He was really versatile, right? He could kind of just do it all. He just had that ability as a pastor. I have since come to discover the power of the liturgy. I have uh, come to a realization that it, it shapes our time around Christ's life and not our civic calendar, and that it provides a full spectrum of reading in the scriptures, and that there are beautiful symbols and colors and things that all serve to remind us of God's purpose. Y'all, this is called a pyramid, and we are in ordinary time. And you'll see in a little bit, let's see if I can get it up, pulled up here. Uh, one more. Great, okay. I've seen a little bit. Like green is the color of ordinary time. This is wonderful for little children to be like, why in the world do the colors keep changing? Right? It's an opportunity for us to raise a generation of faith and say, and say because we're in ordinary time. It'll remind us of God's fruitfulness in this season. Why in the world does the pastor wear this little collar thing? I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there, I promise. Okay, so the first is, we live in something called the liturgical year. If you're following along in your bulletin, and the order of worship on the back is a little outline. You're so welcome. For some of you who are like, yes, I can fill in something, uh, a task. Uh, feel free to follow along. The top there is that we live in something called the liturgical year. It starts with Advent. Go to the next one here. And it ends with Christ the King. These are the, the seasons that mark us as the people of God. Advent is a time of waiting, right? It's the fourth Sunday before Christmas. It always sort of, we're going to talk about this Advent. It's kind of funny to realize, like, when I grew up this way, I was like, isn't it just Christmas? Can't we just, like, is Jesus here, right? Can we just celebrate Jesus' birthday? Like, no. Advent is a time of waiting for the arrival of God. That's the whole entire point of Advent is to sit and wait and long for the inbreaking of God. And Lent is a time of reflection and repentance. It's the 40 days that lead up to Easter that sort of remind us of the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. The 40 days that Christ was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and God was faithful and delivered them to a promised place and promised land. And then you have ordinary time. It's sometimes called kingdom tide. It's the rest of the year. It's the green stuff, right? It's, it's half the year long. It's the season of the Spirit's fruitfulness and includes stories everyone knows and loves. Noah, David, Solomon, and parables of the good life with God. Liturgy is, of course, more than just the liturgical calendar. It involves, as we've already said, like the altar. This is a part of liturgy. And it reminds us that the table is open to all, that God's grace is available to all. The, bapti the, the baptismal font is a part of the liturgy. It reminds us that in baptism we are all brothers and sisters in Christ and in God. We are all family together. Even what we wear as pastors is a part of the liturgy. Right? You may see Pastor Peter occasionally wear something like this. It's called a stole. If you haven't figured out, this is going to be a teaching sermon, but that's what I'm doing. So uh, Pastor Peter would wear a stole. It goes over here like this. It's the mantle of leadership and elders wear it as such. You may recall Lisa Michelle Wilson, who was on staff here a while ago, and she would wear her stole, you ready? Like this. <laughs> Interesting, right? Why the difference? I'm so glad you asked and that you were paying attention, right? <laughs> the elder, right, is ordained to word, table, service, and order. That's part of our, our order, part of our covenant that we take together as elders. Deacons, let's flip it around here, right? 
are ordained a word, service, compassion, and justice. Fundamentally different focuses and things. And the stole designates for the community of God what they're focusing in on. Why in the world would someone wear a silly black shirt and a white collar? Right? I'm not going to give you a huge historical lesson on that, except for the fact that it designates for the community, and I would also say for myself, the function and role that we play as clergy in this space. The, the robe that a lot of folks wear, right, was originally donned sort of as an academic uh, garb, uh, and then eventually people say it covers up and sort of helps people get away from the distraction of what they're wearing underneath it. So pastors don't have to worry about the nicest suit or the nicest tie. They can just put that robe on and be like, look, I can wear my street clothes underneath this, right? It serves a function for the community of God. That's all part of the liturgy. It shapes and forms who we are. So why in the world have a sermon on the liturgy? Remember that question we were sitting with today? How does worship affect my discipleship? A few takeaways for us today. First, the liturgy is a powerful vessel that shapes and forms us. As Laura Jean Truman says, it's in her article. It's on the back of your bulletin there. I'd encourage you to read that article. It's it's a great article. She says this about liturgy. The spiritual calendar takes seriously Ecclesiastes, that there is a time for everything. It tells us that there is a time to repent, rejoice, anticipate, be afraid, be filled with hope, There's a time to yell and a time to be very, very silent. There's a time to work hard and there's a time to rest. There's a time to wait with Jesus in the garden, horrified at what's coming, and a time to jump gleefully into the water like Peter did and swim to the shore because Jesus is cooking breakfast. The liturgy reminds us of two very true things about life. One, that we are not in control, and two, we are not doing this alone. And she goes on to say, in a culture obsessed with individuality and control, the liturgical year invites us to release our tight grip on our lives and participate in something bigger than our individual selves. The liturgical year sings us into its steady rhythms, inviting us to celebrate even when we are full of fear, to repent, even when we're on top of our game. It tells us that we don't repent alone, but we repent together as a community of God. It reminds us about the need for justice when we're trapped in our self-centeredness and calls us to rest in community when we'd rather be out working. Worship and liturgy help give us a narrative. Every Sunday we gather to remember the good news that Christ is risen. Every Sunday we gather to proclaim loud that there is still a more excellent way to live. And every Sunday we gather to proclaim God's faithfulness. Every Sunday we gather to teach our children God's story of faithfulness and redemption. Every Sunday we gather to pray, to comfort, to come together and encourage each other in our spiritual journey along the way. So look, folks, um, I am not a rich man. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have and what I do know is faith in a God that shows up in our lives every 
single day. So will you come and see? Will you come and join his courts with thanksgiving and be filled with wonder and joy anew and see what God is doing? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.